All right. We're still in our series about King David before he was king called The In-Between. And, and we've been talking about being in between different things. And today we're looking at being caught in between the gears of what my favorite author, David Fitch, calls the enemy-making machine. It's a cool title, right? The, the enemy-making machine, in, and this is how he describes it. Whenever a distinctive belief becomes extracted from everyday life, from real-life discernment in the spirit, and this belief becomes an identity marker, it can be used to set up one side against the other. And it begins the process of enemy-making. That's what David Fitch says in his book called The Church of Us Versus Them. This is how I describe the enemy-making machine. It's when I believe so strongly that God is on my side that I stop believing that I need to pray and discern. Right? I, I, I just assume that anything I already want is baptized by God because I'm a Christian. I love God. So therefore, God's on my side, right? And that means that my enemies... Are, must be God's enemies, because I'm on God's side, and so if you're against me, then you're against God, too. And so we see this come up time and time again in our culture, right? Our world is divided. Our world is, is just, we're at each other's throats, and things happen in the world, and then it's so predictable, Right? The conservatives come trot out their Bible verses. The liberals come out and trot out their Bible verses. And everybody believes that God's on their side. God's on my side because this and this and this. And no, oh, God's on my side because this and this and this. And everybody is the one that God is on their side. And the, everybody else becomes the enemy. And... and Fitch says, it, this is a way that we, we form into these tribes. We polar ourselves, polarize ourselves. And we just have to protect our tribe at all costs. And therefore, we make enemies about, of, of other people. So even when we're right about something, even when we have the right opinion, God-honoring beliefs, we can find ourselves becoming disconnected from discernment in the spirit and sucked into the enemy-making machine. And, and this enemy-making machine is what we find in this week's scripture with David and Saul. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 6 through 23. Here's what it says. Oh, well, let me preface this. I've got two things to preface this first. Sorry. First of all, between last week's scripture and this week's scripture, David went to the city called Nob, a city full of priests. And those priests gave him food, they gave him provisions, and they gave him Goliath's sword. I don't know how they ended up with Goliath's sword, but they were like, here, here, take this sword uh, to protect yourself. So they, they helped, the, these priests helped David out, helped keep him away from Saul, helped keep him alive, and then sent him on his way. That's the first thing. The second thing is, there's a guy in this story named Doeg the Edomite. His, that's how you pronounce his name. It's D-O-E-G, Doeg. But I'm not going to call him Doeg because it, that just sounds weird. I'm going to call him Doug. Is there anybody here named Doug? 
he's kind of a bad guy in the story. I don't want to offend any Dougs listening, but I'm calling this guy Doug. I want you to know that I know the correct pronunciation, but I'm going to call him Doug. All right, here we go. Saul heard that David and those who were with him had been located. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with a spear in his hand and all his servants were standing around him. Saul said to his servants who stood among him, Here now, you Benjaminites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a league with the son of Jesse. None of you sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as he's doing today. Doug, the Edomite, who was in charge of Saul's servants, answered, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ablemelech, the son of Ahitab, and he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. The king sent for the priest, Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, for all of his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, by giving him a bread and a sword, and inquiring of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait, as he's doing today? Then Ahimelech answered to the king, Who among all your servants is so faithful as David? He is the king's son-in-law, and is quick to do your bidding, and is honored in your house. Is today the first time I've inquired of God for him? By no means. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any member of my father's house, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. The king said to the guard who stood around him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. They knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me, but the servants of the king would not raise their hand to attack the priests of the Lord. So then the king said to Doug, you, Doug, turn and attack the priests. Doug, the Edomite, turned and attacked the priests on that day and killed 85 who wore the linen ephod. Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword. Men and women, children and infants, oxen, donkeys, and sheep, he put them all to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. Abathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. David said to Abathar, I knew on that day when Doug the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I am responsible for the lives of all your father's house. Stay with me and do not be afraid, for the one who seeks my life seeks your life. You will be safe with me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So how did Saul, king of God's chosen people, anointed by Samuel at one point in time, end up in a place where he is commanding the murder of God's priests. Did Saul just go crazy? I think there's some textual evidence for that. Saul is not in his right mind right now. Do you think Saul was maybe just rotten to begin with and God made this mistake by anointing him in the first place? I don't think God makes mistakes. I think the biggest thing is that he justified it. He found himself sucked into the enemy-making machine. Here's how he said, 
I'm God's guy. God chose me to be the king. Therefore, I'm on God's side. Therefore, what's good for me is good for God. David's threatening me. He's trying to take my kingship away from me. And these priests are helping my enemy David. Therefore, the priests must be against me too. And that makes them my enemies. And if they're my enemies, then they must also be God's enemies. And so I'm going to vanquish my enemies for God. And the problem was that first assumption, right? He wasn't actually on God's side on this one. God did not want him to kill his own priests. So here Saul is threatening, bribing, and generally manipulating his soldiers. He's saying, I'm the one who gave you all this land. I'm the one who put you in charge of all these people. Don't forget who's, which side your bread is buttered on. You'd better do what I say or else you're going to lose all this stuff. You think David's going to do all this for you? He reminded them of everything that they owed him so that they should obey him. But the great thing is they didn't. These soldiers and these guards, when Saul said, you need to kill the priests, they said, no, we're not going to do that. They stood up to the king of Israel and refused to do what he said. Because Saul wanted them to sell out their values as the people of God to advance the cause of his tribe. And they just wouldn't stand for it. Instead, they upheld the values that their nation was founded on, no matter the cost to them personally. They said, Saul, you can take away our command, you can take away our land, you can kill us, but we are not going to kill God's priests because we have an allegiance to God over an allegiance to an earthly king. So Saul went and found the one guy, Doug, the Edomite, who had no allegiance to God, no connection to these values. All Doug had was ambition. He wanted to get in good with Saul. He wanted to get close to this earthly power. And so he went and he murdered the city of Nob, a whole city full of priests. So who was the real patriot that day? Doug, the guy who just did whatever the king said because he was the king? Or the other soldiers? The ones that stood by their values and the values of their nation and the God that they served no matter what an earthly king said. It was the soldiers, right? Their patriotism led them to champion the values of their land rather than just kowtowing to whoever was in charge. And Saul tried to make them feel like traitors for it. He tried to make them feel like they weren't doing their patriotic duty because they weren't obeying him. But Saul was the one who was a real traitor because Saul was betraying the values of the, that he was supposed to uphold as the king. You know who showed, who showed those values, those kingly values, was David. Because when David found out about what happened to those priests, 
He didn't get sucked in by this enemy-making machine. He didn't say, oh, Saul, you villain, I must defeat you and become king for the good of God's people. No, he took responsibility. He didn't look at, at what was going on outside. He looked into his own heart and he said, oh, my gosh, I'm the one that led them there. I knew that Doug was over there, that this Edomite was here, and I figured he was probably going to sell me out. He didn't lash out against an enemy. He took responsibility, and he reflected on what he could have done better. Now, David didn't always do that, right? There came a day when David was king, when he had that ugly incident with Bathsheba and murdered Bathsheba's husband and tried to cover it up. And he said, well, what's good for the tribe of David is good for Israel. And what's good for Israel is good for God. So we need to lie and cover this up. And then Nathan, a true prophet and a true patriot for Israel, called the king out on it. Even though David had the power to have him executed for that. All because Nathan valued obedience to God over obedience, over, over his own life. The, the allegiance to the values is the important thing. The, the patriotism displayed in this story reminds me a little bit of George Washington. One of the most radical things Washington ever did was limit himself to two terms as president. There was no law at that time that said he had to do that. He could have kept serving. But Washington knew that if all he did was fight a war to replace a monarch with a president who acted like a monarch, then the whole Revolutionary War was for nothing. He knew that he had to be different, that America had to be different. And that he had to lead the way and voluntarily step down in order to ensure a peaceful transfer of power so that the values of the Constitution would be a reality. He said as much in his farewell address. This is what Washington said in his farewell address. And looking forward to the moment which is intended to terminate the career of my public life, my feelings do not permit me to suspend the deep acknowledgement of that debt of gratitude which I owe to my beloved country for the many honors it has conferred upon me. The constancy of your support was the essential prop of the efforts and a guarantee of the plans by which they were affected. Profoundly penetrated with this idea, I shall carry it with me to my grave as a strong incitement to unceasing vows that heaven may continue to you the choicest tokens of its benef beneficence, that your union and brotherly affection may be perpetual, that the free constitution, which is the work of your hands, may be sacredly maintained, and that its administration in every department may be stamped with wisdom and virtue, that in fine, the happiness of the people of these states under the auspices of liberty may be, completely, may be made complete by so careful a preservation and so prudent a use of this blessing as will acquire to them the glory of recommending it to the applause, the affection and adoption of every nation which is yet a stranger to it. Washington upheld the values of the Constitution more than his own political and personal power so that he stepped down in order to ensure that it could happen. He lived out the values of the Constitution even when it cost him. 
Y'all, I'm not interested in talking about current day politics and what values are that make us a true American patriot today. I'm not going to wade into those waters here and now. I don't have to tell you that we have a horrible problem of polarization and tribalism and enemy making in our politics today. And we can point the finger at the other team for why it's so bad. But we all know that we're partly to blame ourselves. But more importantly than our American citizenship, you and I are citizens of another kingdom. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. And there are values that we can adhere to that can make us true true patriots of the kingdom of heaven. What are those values that we can adhere to that make us true patriots in a way that Saul could not be? Well, it's lived out in the person of Jesus Christ. Think about the values of Jesus Christ, the one who, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The one who commands us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. The one who hung on a cross and while he was in the process of being unjustly killed said, forgive them for they know not what they do. These are the values that ought to define the kingdom of God. These are the values that ought to define a Christian. And it makes the church this weird tribe among other tribes because the church is the only tribe that exists for the sake of people outside the tribe. The kingdom of God is working for the good of people outside of the kingdom of God to bring salvation and reconciliation to everybody. Paul described the church as agents of reconciliation for the world, even for those who declared themselves to be our enemies. Fitch puts it like this. The world is heading toward the final culmination of Jesus' reign when every knee shall bow and the whole world shall recognize him as Lord. But the world ain't there yet. All around us are those who do not yet recognize what is happening. They are still afraid. They run on you versus me and us versus them. But the church is already where the world is heading. The world just doesn't know it yet. We are living in the kingdom ahead of time. We are the first fruits of a harvest that shall be fully gathered in the future. Therefore, we are against no one. Despite appearances, the world is not our enemy. We are just ahead of them. The church is the space beyond enemies. The church beyond us versus them. The values of the kingdom are summed up in the cross. Summed up in sacrificial love for other people. Which means if we are going to be true patriots for the kingdom of God, then we'll live our lives in a cruciform manner. That is, our lives will look like the cross. It means that we will love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, that we'll be servants of all. It's the backwards logic of the kingdom of God at work. The thing is, this kind of life is impossible to live without Jesus Christ. It's impossible to have a tribe that exists for the good of those outside it without the power of God. 
Without him, we'll inevitably circle the wagons and look after our own instead of loving our enemies when we feel threatened. Jesus is the only one who can empower us to live a cruciform life. But the good news is that he makes himself freely available to all of us. And one of the ways that he does that is through the sacraments. Jesus makes himself available to us in a real spiritual way when we receive the elements of communion. He invites us to the altar and meets us there and gives us grace where we can get up and go out and live a cruciform life for the values of the world. So it's Independence Day, a day when we celebrate our freedom. Come to the altar and receive freedom from sin, freedom from the enemy-making machine, and meet with Jesus here today. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the way in which you've given us freedom. I thank you for the ways in which you have freed us from this enemy-making machine. God, I thank you for the example of David, for the way in which he showed that he valued your ways above his own power, for the ways in which these soldiers valued your priests over getting in good with Saul. God, give us the strength to value your kingdom and your kingdom ways above our own tribes. Show us how, God. In your name I pray. Amen.